There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to Your Book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan, and the author of Insatiable, a love story for greedy girls. If you'd like a signed copy, you can order one from the Margate Bookshop. They deliver nationwide. Today's guest is the author Claire Chambers, whose novel Small Pleasures, which was nominated for the Women's Prize for Fiction, was one of my greatest pleasures of the summer of 2020. We talked about surprise second-hand treasures, the thrill of the backlist and journalists in literature. I was wondering about what your last year has been like in terms of reading. Did you find yourself reaching for anything different or anything comforting and familiar? Um, I, I read much more than I normally do just because there was nothing else to do, really. Um, so, yeah, I did do much more reading. And I, I found, strangely, that a lot of the things I started reading were to do with kind of themes of, of confinement and um, imprisonment. And, you know, it was all very appropriate. And it wasn't deliberate, but I, I read um, A Gentleman in Moscow, which is, of course, about, you know, the, the chap in his, his hotel making a, a universe within four walls. And then I read Bel Canto, which was also about a group of people being taken hostage. Um, and then I, I started reading kind of memoirs of, um, of, of sort of oppressive childhoods like Educated and The Glass Castle and, and that had also had this theme of, of imprisonment and confinement and people trying to escape and I thought gosh I, I need to get away from this I need to read something that's <laughs> not to do with with being locked down um, but that, that was where it all seemed to be leading. I don't know The Glass Castle I'd love to hear more about it. Oh it's really good it's um about and um, it's it's very like Educated in that it's a memoir of, of really feckless parents um, bringing up the this family in America and, and they, they sort of travel around, they're very itinerant and um, the, the daughter eventually kind of escapes from, from their really, really hopeless parenting. Um, I mean, they're not, quite as, they're not quite as deranged as the parents in Educated. They're, they're not kind of um, religious fundamentalists. They're just kind of super bohemian, refuse to do a day's work, um, you know, just completely feckless and it's hilarious and moving and and just great and her her liberation is so wonderful to read um but yeah i i definitely recommend that one it's it's really really good it's fascinating isn't it because i always think about you know children's books and the advice or you know the idea that for the story to get started you've really got to take the parents out of the equation mm. somehow in order to let people have adventures but then yeah. and obviously that comes up you know in small pleasures as well about what it is to be an adult child and the effect our parents have on us however we try to kind of break free yeah. as adults or and how we succeed and how we fail yeah yeah I think um you know motherhood and the different different forms of, of parenting and, and mother-child relationships is a big thing in that in the book and I've just tried to sort of do various models of, of that relationship, all of which are, are, you know, sort of frustrated in one way or another. None of them are what you'd hold up as ideal. The one that looks apparently ideal is far from it. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know, it, it seems to be a slightly cynical view of um, happy family life, really. But that, that's what made me think about these, these memoirs. I was trying to think... Is there such a thing as a as a really good memoir of childhood that has effective parenting in it, or is it 
is it a given that it's only interesting if the parents are absolutely hopeless? And one, once you get something that's actually happy and effective, it's just not interesting to read about. I could hardly think of any accounts of childhood being happy that, that, that worked, apart from perhaps um, Gerald Durrell's books, but couldn't think of another one. So true. I, think I love um, Nina Stibby. And I know that her, you know, other than Love Nina, those are sort of novels, but, you know, with a, I think, a little bit close to home. And I thought well, they, you know, in some ways, in some readings, they do seem sort of happy and jolly and fun. But then when you think about, you know, the, the mother in those books, you're like, no, there is there is chaos and <laughs> disorder yeah. and anxiety. Yeah, I agree absolutely about those. Yeah, she, the, the, the mother is not... Um, not dysfunctional she's just eccentric I think is is the way to put it but they are they are funny and happy yes that's a good example of the genre just thinking about um Laura Ingalls Wilder as well and I suppose those books I suspect are her putting a very positive spin on something that was quite difficult to endure at times and whether you can call it good parenting or bad parenting when it's just you know making the best in those sort of homesteading circumstances yeah, I think I think it's evident that that's from the child's eye view, not at all seeing it through the the, the um, mother's eye view, the one who had to do all the work to make it look like it was all happy and and working and idyllic. I think that's that's a typical child's way of thinking. Oh, what a wonderful childhood we had! While the mother's thinking, you know, will this ever end? You know, <laughs> will will these chores never go away? Did you grow up reading? Have you always been a reader? Have there been times in your life where you've reached for books and times when you've not had as much of a relationship with reading? Um, yeah, I think I have always been a reader. My, my dad was an English teacher and massively bookish and the house was always absolutely full of books. And so reading was very much, you know, the thing, the thing to do. And he used to read to us, you know, the sort of rude bits from Chaucer and, you know, slightly inappropriate things like that to, to make us interested um, so I think I inherited my, my love of books from him. But there was a time in my teen, my early teens when I wasn't much of a reader. I was just more interested in television, much more interested in Charlie's Angels and Starsky and Hutch than reading. And I think it was my older sister who got me back into it by trying to read books to me. She tried to read things like Northanger Abbey and Jane Eyre to me to try and sort of, you know, improve me, really. And she was very good at telling the great stories from the classics without reading them so she'd narrate the whole of the Count of Monte Cristo just the plot you know what happened um to get me interested without reading it so that that was a really good good to have an older sister to induct you into the classics kind of painlessly oh wow I'm not sure I know the plot of the Count of Monte Cristo I've never read it um well don't it's massive it's, it's ridiculous and overlong and um you know it's kind of <laughs> it's so good in parts but if you've got somebody who can just just rattle off the plot to you in half an hour great that's the way to do it I know there are organizations that that do that that kind of have books abridged in order to make them accessible to readers I do think that you know books can be quite daunting and still that's that balance between being really gripped and challenged by something and then thinking oh no books it's homework yeah I think I think it also add kind of concentration and um, appetite for for a really long um, detailed read has slightly declined in recent years I think I think we've been sort of twittified and and it's quite hard to maintain the concentration necessary for one of those really wordy 19th century novels I was I was kind of trying to reread Thomas Hardy the other day and I thought goodness that you know this would never get published now it's just it's just there's just so much description and um introduction and preamble and you know it just it's it's demands so much of the reader before it gives anything back but I loved it I loved it in my teens and in my 20s but now I feel a bit impatient with Tom Sardi. <laughs> was there a particular one of his that you were rereading? I was just looking flicking through them I can't remember why I was trying to find a reference to something and so I was just sort of leafing through and it was in the leafing through that I was thinking goodness me there's a lot of you know a lot of this this scene in the pub with the yokels it goes on for pages and pages it's not just a tiny interlude um but I think it might have been the Mayor of Casterbridge that's one of my favorites and and I would say the most plot rich of them there are, there are wordier, long, you know, more long-winded ones than that. Oh, I, I really struggled with um, The Return of Native was my A-level book. And I knew 
I wasn't going to like it when it's. Is it, I think he's called Clem and he has left London. He thinks London's decadent and dreadful and he was a diamond merchant and he has no truck with diamonds and he just wants to live a simple village life with the village folk. I might enjoy this, Clem, if you were back with diamonds. <laughs> Being decadent in London, that's the book I want to read. You've lost me already. And I was sort of reading, you know, in the living in the middle of nowhere in Dorset, desperate to go to London. Yeah. It's very like, no, yes. not for me. I should go back. I should have another go. But I do think that I will read anything if there's a, a good party in the middle. And I do think there's a bit of a dearth of parties in Thomas Hardy. I know the odd sort of garlanding of the May, whatever. Yeah, there might be a, there might be a maypole dance or maybe at the nasty Skimmington ride or something, but they're all a bit, they're all, they all have some sort of element of tragedy attached to their parties. I mean, I think, you know, that's what happens to Tess of the Durvilles after a, a sort of evening of revelry, maybe. So, no, you, you never get a straightforward party in Thomas Hardy. Somebody whose wife ends up getting sold at the end of it or something awful. It does seem a bit most sort of very simplistic reading, and I'm sure there's much more to it than this. And I'm sure the point, you know, that he was making was, you know, this is how, how life is. But it does, any woman with a bit of life to her seemed to get punished for it. And then, you know, if you were sort of a, a good girl and kept your head down, you got a happy ending. Yeah, well, I don't, I don't even, think, even think he granted... The good girls' happy endings. There, there are almost no happy endings <laughs> in Hardy at all. Maybe I think um, far from the madding crowd, just about. But the rest of them, absolute misery from start to finish. Are there any books that you've changed your mind about? That any that you've maybe read or tried to read and not got on with and picked up again and fallen for? The other way round, I've I've done it. Where I I read um, Le Grand Mon when I was sixteen or seventeen and thought it was you know the best book ever written and absolutely wonderful and I think it just speaks to young people it's about kind of um it's a sort of rite of passage book isn't it and it's it's about the sort of wonderful mystical kind of era twilight era of youth and I, then I read it again in my perhaps 40s and I just I just didn't get it at all and I think that that is just because it's you know you have to read it as a young person my I, I tried to go back and read my least favorite Jane Austen this summer during lockdown because um, I, I had this idea that I should try and embrace slow reading because I'm a really fast reader because I'm always trying to get on to the next good thing. So I'm, I'm always belting through everything. And I thought, well, maybe maybe the thing that was the problem with, with my reading of Persuasion is that I always took it too fast and belted through it for the story and I need to just take it at a slow pace. So I reread that um, and I enjoyed it much, much more when I read it really slowly you know, absolutely every sentence, lingering over every sentence and thinking about it before I processed to the next one. And I think if if I knew that I was, I had another hundred years of life ahead of me, that is how I would read books. But it's just the thought that there's so many to read and you know so little time that you have to you have to read everything so fast. But it was it was a game changer. If I I'd love to do it again with another you know big book, um, a bigger book than Persuasion, and try and just force myself to read it slowly and attentively. It's hard, isn't it? Because I'm the same. I'm a real kind of binge reader and I'm sure I must miss so much because I'm always kind of, you know, not taking my time and thinking, you know, I've got I've got so much to read. How do you feel about the way you are read? Do you want to do you want people to read you as you read? Or do you think, no, this is a lot of work. I want people to read me slowly and savour me. Well of course it's always absolutely mortifying when you think that something's taken you two or three years to write and somebody says oh I, I read it you know it, in one sitting and you think in one sitting this is three years work you're talking about um so it, it, it's always it's always horrifying how quickly people can read you something um but it, you know I'm, I'm just always absolutely grateful to the point of, of sort of fawning adoration for anyone who bothers to pick up one of my books and read it so I don't mind whether they you know read it fast slowly or don't even get to the end of it. I'm just so so pleased somebody's bought it. <laughs> What's the last book that you remember just not being able to tear yourself away from or really resenting anything that distracted you from it? Oh, well, all, almost all the things I read this this summer, I felt like that about because I, I was, you know, I chose them carefully because I just didn't want to waste my time on something um, that wasn't going to grip me. But I, there was one that was recommended to me by um, a bookshop when you, when I was sort of going around bookshops signing hardbacks in the summer on those little windows of opportunity when you were allowed to do that. Um, someone um, in Primrose Hill Bookshop recommended News of the World by Paulette Giles. Um, 
and I'd never heard of it and it wasn't the sort of book I'd pick up because the cover's a bit dull and I, it, it just wasn't very enticing looking and the heading News of the World to an English reader has connotations that aren't particularly you know, literary but it was actually a really wonderful western um, set in Texas and I absolutely loved it. Um, it it's just a wonderful book, it's about an, an old guy just after the um, end of the um, Civil War who goes around uh, reading newspapers aloud to pay, paying audiences of people who are illiterate and he's, he's tasked with returning this young girl who's been kidnapped by Native American tribe and she's, she's been re-kidnapped by um, uh, the sort of sheriff's office or whoever and they ask this old gentleman to, to try and return her to her family some hundreds of miles away across fairly kind of dangerous terrain and so it's it's like a sort of road road book and a buddy book and a, a travel story and an odd couple story with this old man and this little girl who doesn't want to be um <laughs> doesn't want to be removed from her native american um kidnappers she's she's completely integrated in that life and is perfectly happy there and it's a really just a wonderful book and i i just i got myself completely immersed in this world and I didn't want to leave it. I was very, very late to an American marriage. And I think I think I read Silver Sparrow first, which was an earlier book of Teari Jane's, but was sort of reissued. And, you know, that bliss of sort of finding a writer you love. Like, oh, there's, there's loads here. Yeah, I loved An American Marriage. I, I think I read that a couple of years ago, or just after it won the, won the Women's Prize. And I thought it was absolutely terrific. Um, yeah, it's, yes, it's great when you find someone who's got a backlist that you hadn't known about. It's always always really exciting. Yeah, and I was never quite sure how I wanted it to end. I felt each time I, I met a new configuration of the characters, I, I felt the sympathy for, for that coupling or whatever, and I, I, I couldn't work out where my sympathies lay. I felt I was being expertly manipulated, which is always a good feeling when you feel you're in, in those sort of confident hands. In general, I know you've talked about um, rereading Persuasion and just looking again at Thomas Hardy. Are you much of a rereader in general? Are there certain books that you sort of go back to like once a year or in a seasonal way, or do you tend to look for new? I'm, no, I'm not a, much of a rereader because I just have this feeling that there's so much else out there that I must read. Um, so I don't, I don't do that thing of thinking, you know, I must reread Jane Austen every year or I must reread Middlemarch every year or something. Um, I mean, I have read those sort of classics more than once, but I feel that I need to forget them again before I go back. And the trouble with, with books that you've really enjoyed is that you don't forget them that quickly. You know, they, they really do stay with you. Um, so I'm, I'm not a great rereader. One book I, I have reread with an attempt to try and get to the bottom of it is The Quincunks by Charles Palliser, which is an absolute doorstep of a book um, that, you know, of such... A complex plotting that it just blows your mind and I've read that twice now to try and um, crack the mystery at its heart and I still I still haven't quite so I might go in for the a third time with that one one day but not not for another 10 years so every 10 years I think it needs another another go but that's that's an absolutely brilliant book I can't recommend it enough um, but generally speaking I'm more of a onto the new you know ring out the old ring in the new. So I'd love to hear about the books that you love to give as gifts and the best books that you've been given as presents? Daisy, now for this for this issue of giving and receiving books, I'm afraid I'm an absolute refusenik. I don't like receiving books as gifts because my, you know, I know what I like to read and I've got a big pile of them and I've only got so many hours left in my life to read. And so I feel like if somebody gives me a book, they're effectively stealing time from my book reading time. So I don't feel it's like a gift. I feel it like it's a hostile act, um, and for that and for that reason, I don't give people books because I think I'm I'm just I'm either presupposing they haven't read something and telling them they should have, or I'm sort of imposing my taste on them, which is doomed to disappointment because they'll they'll eventually read it and say they didn't think much of it or they won't ever get around to reading it. So I think I think giving books is is um, vexed altogether unless somebody specifically told you the book they want. I think that's entirely reasonable. What I always want is to be shocked and surprised by a book and to enjoy it much more than I was expecting to. And if someone is giving you a book and saying, I think you'll enjoy this, that's quite a high stake start. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. And I mean, it's it's also, it's just putting your friendship on the line, really, because it's, it's so personal with books. And I, I love them so much. 
the, the books I love. And if I give someone something that I, I think is wonderful and they don't like it, then that's that's a big issue, really. It's a big, a big sort of admission that there's this whole area of literary taste where we don't meet, where, you know, uh, there's not even an inch of overlap. And sometimes it's better not to know, really, with your friends that there isn't that overlap so what do you do if ever anyone asks you for a recommendation or do they just know not to oh I'm, I'm fine with giving recommendations I mean I do that all the time I think that's a different um that's a different thing from giving someone a book I think giving you know people always ask for recommendations for their book clubs or whatever and you know that that's a fine that's fine to get a, a whatsapp message saying oh, I've got book club tomorrow night what am I going to recommend and so I reel off a list of, of things that I thought were brilliant and then the ball's very much in their court what they choose and what they read and whether they like it and I don't feel I'm not going to take it personally whereas if for instance I gave someone a copy of Love Nina and they didn't like it then that would that would be a bit of a deal breaker for me I would think what's wrong with you what where, where is your sense of humour and and so it's too risky to do that. Gosh, I mean, when you said that just then, I was furious with this hypothetical person <laughs> and thinking, how very dare they? But then I've been going around giving out copies of um, Early Morning Riser by Catherine Heine. And I thought my parents might love it. And sometimes we coincide and sometimes we don't. So they've just moved and they have a new local bookshop. So I thought I'd support the new bookshop in Mulvan. And I bought Early Morning Riser and Standard Deviation. And they both loved standard deviation and it was sort of it's so lovely and such a relief. And on WhatsApp they were recommending that to my other sisters. And I thought, well, we're you know, keeping oh, it in the family. I think we don't know anyone else. But ah, oh, it's there's no better feeling. No, <laughs> it's worked. Those two that those two books are exactly in the same mould of Love Nina. If I I loved them so much and I thought they were so funny and so warm and lovely. And if, if I recommended them to someone and they didn't like them, I think where is your heart? You, you, what's wrong with you? So yes, you know, I think I think recommending's fine, but if I'd given that as a gift and someone hadn't got it, it would it would be really like just trampling on my on my affections. I've just realised as well that early morning riser is very much in that genre of complicated adult parent relations. Yes, yes, it is. It's a really it's. I mean, goodness, it really does does over the family relationship, doesn't it? Where the where the um, the heroine ends up being a sort of mother to a, a man not much younger than herself. Um, yeah, it's it's a really a really good book about alternative forms of love, isn't it? You know, non non romantic love, um, and and I thought that was just such a wonderful way of describing relationships. I I thought it was really good and and very funny with it as well. Not not sentimental or kind of cloying, but just just sort of funny and charming and witty, lovely. Are you a person who haunts um, sort of second-hand shops and looks for sort of backlisted things and, and out-of-print things? Are there any weird treasures you've discovered that way? Yeah, I do like, I do like um, second-hand shops, but I do have a rule that I don't buy living authors because I feel that's kind of doing them out of a royalty. But if somebody's, if somebody's sort of safely dead, I think, well, it's fair game. And, you know, obviously books that are out of print or you know unavailable through any other means then um yes i'm i'm always in there in a second-hand bookshop having a snuffle um i've found lots of good things like lots of old josephine tay um novels you know those sort of lovely crime fiction of the 1930s and um some um winifred holtby her early books which i which weren't then currently available when i found them um i found some really crumbling old edition of um South Riding, which sort of fell apart in my hands like a deck of cards, and I had to sort of put it back together and read it like loose leaf pages. But uh, yeah, that was a little treasure. Oh, fabulous! I don't think I know Josephine Tay at all. Oh, she's a really great um, crime novelist of the, I think the 1930s, and she she wrote a couple of quite famous ones called The Franchise Affair and Brat Farrar, which are really good. Um, but she she's written many more than that, and the, and the the um, the less well known ones were, were sort of out of print for a while, but they're kind of kind of being re, um, reissued. But they're they're very good. Just they've got just a lovely old fashioned sort of quality to them, a bit like Dorothy L. Sayers. Oh, they sound great, and I'm not always the greatest fan of sort of historical fiction. Occasionally, I feel a little bit as though 
especially anything I think that's set sort of long before the 20th century. And I understand this impulse entirely because I think I'd be the same, but the sort of that occasionally you feel that something, well, I've done all this research, I can't let it go to waste. And you're told things that don't really support the story. But reading something sort of, say, from the 30s, anything that feels old fashioned, but was written kind of contemporaneously at the time, I'm, I'm in heaven. Yes, yes, exactly. They, they, they feel, um, they feel kind of old fashioned, but Again, they're not they're not historical to themselves, if you know what I mean. Um, yeah, and they're they're just really really well plotted and and they've got a sort of slightly modern feel. I mean, the franchise affair is about a um, a girl who accuses two elderly women of kidnapping and abusing her, and it's just such an odd story for the nineteen thirties. And it's about the the police um, sort of detective who has to try and get to the bottom of this strange story that this schoolgirl claims that these these sort of blameless looking well they're not elderly women middle-aged women have have kidnapped her it's it's really you know it's such a good story and so well done um and just such an odd thing to, to write about yeah and i'm so glad i know because going to be honest if i saw a book called the franchise affair i wouldn't think oh that sounds thrilling i think it was something to do with a business studies course but um that plot sounds really intriguing this is useless i can't remember what it was called but i heard an elizabeth jane howard short story on radio for a while ago and again it was very very odd and it was about a sort of a murder mystery and it was a timid girl who I think had maybe moved to London and she had quite anxious parents and she had bought a car, um, a used car, and she lived with other girls who were sort of quite rackety and glamorous and not always very good at including her. And there's a sort of creepy kind of ghostly murder or a murdering ghost, I don't know. I love Elizabeth Jane Howard. I'm going to Google it and find out what it was and listen to it. Do you listen to audiobooks? Yeah, I do. I'm I'm absolute addict for an audiobook. I can't do I can't do anything that doesn't that I don't need my brain for, you know, for, for other activities without listening to an audiobook. So if I'm gardening or ironing or doing housework or driving or going for a walk, in in go the earphones and I'm I'm listening to an audiobook. Um you know, I I couldn't do without them. They're so great. I, I listened to such a good one um recently which was Love After Love by Ingrid Persaud. And it's, I mean, the book needs no kind of imprimatur for me because it's just won all sorts of prizes and it's generally wonderful. But but the audio version is is her reading of it and she does the voices so brilliantly. Um, you know, these three different characters, um, the, the, the mother, the, the son and the gay, love, um, gay lodger uh, in Trinidad. And she just does all the voices and the conversations. It's so hilarious and so moving. Um, so I'd I'd recommend I'd recommend that as an audiobook, even over the text, just to get her voice. Oh, that sounds excellent! I'm going to download that. I've, it's been on my list of sort of things to read for ages, but it sounds as though, you know, audio is is even better. Um, yeah. Who narrates Small Pleasures? Someone called Karen Cass, who does a very good job of uh, the voices and you know the the nuances, and I you know I, I recommend her to you wholeheartedly how does that feel having an actor going and sort of reading and interpreting your work no I felt I felt enormously relieved I just thought imagine how awful it would be if you had to read it yourself because not not everyone has a really nice voice and you know I I would be (laughs) sort of lapsing into my native Croydon um you know after a few minutes so I just thought oh how, how wonderful to have somebody who actually has a nice voice to listen to reading your book for you. Terrific. We can't all be Ingrid Persaud and, and be brilliant and do it ourselves. Um, so the fact that there, there are, you know, actors who can, who can do that kind of thing, uh, apparently tirelessly without sounding weary or hoarse or all the things that, that I would if I was doing it. Um, yeah, no, I think it's, it's an absolute privilege to hear somebody reading your book sort of professionally, so to speak. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We'll be back to Claire soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week. Eat My Heart Out by Zoe Pilger, published by Profile Books. Anne-Marie is 23, lost and looking for love, but instead stumbles into the arms of the legendary second-wave feminist Stephanie Haight, who is determined to give Anne-Marie an awakening of sorts via strange ceremonies and strip clubs. This book is sharp, dark, wildly funny and ahead of its time. If, like me, you're a fan of Bridget Jones and I Love Dick, you'll adore it. Eat My Heart Out by Zoe Pilger is out now. Now back to Claire. I've really loved journalism's storyline of small pleasures and all of those details and about, you know, local reporting. Are there any journalism stories or, you know, things in the world of sort of publishing and media that you have really enjoyed? Well, I read um, Michael Frayne's, I think it's called Towards the End of Morning, which was a book set in a a newspaper office in the 50s. And that kind of gave me a a glimpse of of that kind of life of, you know, long lunches and brimming ashtrays and men in nylon shirts, um, kind of leaning over typewriters. And it it had that real sort of feel of old-fashioned Fleet Street. Um, So uh, that was a useful kind of... Um, inspiration from for the point of view of the, the journalism but mainly I, I got my my inspiration from, from just reading old local newspapers because they're they're just suck, full of such wonders M- much more so than a national broadsheet if you you know an old local newspaper from the 1950s just has such tiny little things in it you know the, these sort of things like you know a, a newspaper article about a a girl who's been sent to reform school for being unruly or or for stealing a pair of gloves or somebody who hasn't paid their dog licence or something. And, and the, the, the crimes and misdemeanours are so tiny and they, they just hint at this, this um, hidden lives of people that's so interesting. And also the advertisements as well just give you this flavour of, what, of what's going on with people and what's important and, you know, there's sort of advertisements for vests and embrocations and bunion cream and all, all these kind of intimate little things on the, in the newspaper that make you think how what, what people's daily lives must have been like. I do love that. I saw in a charity shop the other day, I think they had a pile of that old like woman in home or something, and that the ads are pretty much, all they really have to say is like, we have vests. They don't really need to do much selling beyond that. <laughs> Yeah, there were some there were some articles in this paper that I was reading which would have things about you know it's National Salad Week or it's National <laughs> Soup Week or um, you know here's a here's our selection of um, foundation garments in a range of gay colours and it was just also sort of charming and old fashioned and you know it's it's sort of read like a parody but it was it was all just real. There's a Marion Keys book I really love, Sushi for Beginners, and it's sort of about 
glossy media kind of coming to Dublin and a London magazine editor being sent off to launch this magazine in Dublin, feeling as though she'd been sent to school for backwater, but also her deputy, Ashling, her second in command, has been on, I can't remember the name of the magazine, but it's a sort of, it's much more Women's Weekly than Vogue. And she's fired for, I think, giving someone a household hint that doesn't work and says, try to use baking soda to get a stain out. And the baking soda doesn't work. And the reader who wrote in for the tip is threatening to sue. But (laughs) I do love that collision of worlds and, you know, the sort of the nonsense glamour of magazines, especially in the 90s, people throwing money at things, but also that the much more real probably much more kind of evocative of how people are actually living those sort of the details of that kind of you know a magazine that's sort of supposed to help people who have nothing much in the way of time or money (laughs) yeah it's very well put i've just remembered a a recent book that i read that's about journalism um, on Hampstead heath by marika kobold and that that's sort of got its um main storyline is somebody who in in a sort of deadline panic just invents a story um based on based on an event that it didn't quite happen or it certainly didn't happen the way she wrote and how it 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 suddenly acquires this sort of massive momentum online and and, uh people are trying to track down the the protagonist of this of this fake story and how it all gets out of control and i thought god that, that must be something that happens all the time people just making stuff up on a deadline and um uh, it did make me laugh. Oh, good Lord. Well, I probably can't name them, but I used to ghostwrite uh, various columns for various pop stars and you'd get them on the phone. And there was one group in particular who were quite intense and quite tricky. And this is for a teen magazine and it would have taken, you know, weeks to get them on the phone. And then they'd say what they'd say was entirely unprintable for our readership. <laughs> and so I'd be like... We're really looking forward to seeing you all on our new tour. (laughs) (laughs) It's uh, quite (laughs) eye-opening, quite alarming. If and when we're ever allowed to go anywhere ever again, and I hope we are, which books would you like to bring with you if you had a a week of holiday and a week of reading? Um, I suppose the books that are are just still on my to-be-read pile, um, the book that I'm reading at the moment I'd have to take with me, which is... A Fortnight in September by R.C. Sheriff, which is a delightful little vignette of um, lower middle class family life in the 1930s on a, on a holiday to Bogner. Oh, I just read that. I loved it so much. I have never been so invested in people getting from one platform to the other at Clapham Junction. I know, I know. Uh, you, you know, you're on page 57 and they haven't even got on the train yet. It's incredible. Um, but every little detail is so wonderful and, you know, it's, nothing really happens except them going to the seaside and, and getting a, a beach hut. And it's, but it's, you, you, yeah, you just feel every, every little twinge of excitement on their behalf. It's so wonderful. It's the way that he sees them all and my heart breaks and aches for the mother in that story and you feel her constant sort of low-level anxiety and that she can't ever really relax and sort of you know release herself into the holiday that she is so nervous about everyone else's yes enjoyment and she has all these slightly unspoken anxieties about everything about she's sort of got this phobia about Clapham Junction which which you know haunts her every year because every year they have to go through Clapham Junction and it's something that she has to sort of build herself up to do and I yeah I really felt for all her her little kind of sorrows and anxieties and she's she's wearing the wrong stuff all the time she's Mm. the others are all in their in their sort of sand shoes or whatever they're called and their bathing suits and she's always in some kind of twin set and shoes that you can't walk on shingle in and things you know she's just not prepared you know it's heartbreaking but it's so well done i'm going to paraphrase horribly but there's a line in the pursuit of love i think my fanny says something like if a woman is looking in the mirror a lot it's not out of vanity but of a feeling that something is amiss and something is not as it should be and i thought about that a lot when i was reading fortnight in september there's well there's so many good lines in that book i mean it's so so quotable um, yeah, I think that's very true, and I've, I've really felt for the, the poor mother in that book, and, and the, 
the writer was very was very sort of knowing and sympathetic about female troubles. I felt, for, you know, um, but he he also did male anxieties and and um, male uh, sort of li- their little vanities about their status and things like that as well. So brilliantly, it's true. And this, you know, the sort of the rituals and and the control. And I don't, did you say you did you say you're sort of halfway through it? I don't want to. Spoil anything? Yeah, I don't know. No, I'm, I'm just about. Yeah, I'm about halfway through it. I mean, that said, I don't think there's much in that book that, that there's not really a twist. No, it's not. It's not <laughs> going to be a. There's not going to be a body in that beach hut, is there? I've got a feeling. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, all of the you know the children in the family and the father as well, and the way he feels about his place in the world and how fragile that is and how he feels so really really very very happy and very secure and it doesn't sort of take very much the way that we've always looked at other people and judged ourselves and judged them as sort of the the context of things and what matters and that you know them getting to in the boarding house being a little bit shabby but they're them all being so determined not to see it and so determined yes, to kind of enjoy yes. themselves with sheer force of will yes and yes they're, they're sort of limited ambitions and they're they're occasional glimpses of their own limited ambitions and then they sort of come back from that abyss of what of, of staring into the future that isn't really going to change or or you know improve that much and so they keep coming back to this this fortnight it's the sort of the, the pearl in the in, in the oyster of life that you know makes it all worthwhile it's it's so moving i don't want to tell you what your own book is about because you know far better than I do but it really did make me think a lot about small pleasures and this idea of not not to dream too much and not to hope too hard not to get too close to the sun and the sort of the the thrill and the danger of when you do let your universe get a little bit wider and when you zoom out yeah and and when you've when you've sort of awoken the the sort of the monster of of longing can you ever put it back to sleep again and that's Mm. you know that's something that comes up again and again and um the idea of just of just frustrated potential and um being being content with a limited life and trying to try to comfort yourself with, with tiny treats um rather than ambitiously you know going for going for sort of passion and glory um, yeah, I, I, that, I mean that was the sort of main the main story of the book really that, that the miracle is not really about the virgin birth it's about mm. the possibility of of genes miraculous awakening to a, a fuller life. Yes, a sort of a blossoming. Um, I talk about this book far too much on this podcast, but I love it. Have you come across the Leonard and Hungry Pool by? Um, Ronan Hessian. I've I've heard I've heard much uh, you know good things of it, but I haven't read it or got it yet. But it's um, it sounds great. Tell me about uh, it. It's an unusually quiet book, and it is very much about just sweetness and humanity and very gentle hope, I suppose, and microscopic connection. It's it's a book where nothing happens and everything happens, and I think that's my mm. favourite thing. Oh yeah, my favorite, absolutely my favorite genre. Yeah, a book where nothing happens. Absolutely. Are there any others that you can recommend? <laughs> I don't know. If, I don't know if nothing much happens in Cassandra at the wedding, but it it's it's. Um, do you know that one by Dorothy I Baker? Don't I think I'd love it? I think Andy Miller of Backlisted recommended it, and Andy Miller never steers me wrong. I wouldn't say nothing happens, but it's a pretty simple idea that there's. Um, twin sisters and one of them is driving back from her college at Berkeley to Berkeley, Berkeley, Berkeley to um, her sister's wedding and, and it just it's just the events of that weekend and it, it becomes apparent on the on the course of this drive that, that the two sisters were once in a very kind of codependent relationship following the death of their mother and have been very close but but now Cassandra is the very needy one and is not at all ready to let go whereas Judith her twin is is about to get married and is moving on. And it's this tremendous battle of wills between Cassandra, who's determined that the wedding won't take place, and Judith, who's determined that it will. And it, it's positively Shakespearean in its intensity. Although, you know, it's, it only takes place over the course of a, a weekend. Um, it's, it's wonderful, a really wonderful read. It's, it was written in about 1961, I think. Um, 
and it's just full of just full of um, truth about family and relationships and and sort of suffering. It's really good. That does sound wonderful, and I do. I love books about sisters. I've got five younger sisters, and I often think that it's a way for certainly in the past, not you know now. Luckily, you don't need an excuse, but a way of I suppose legitimising a novel that's about the relationship women have with each other. And again, I'm not really sure that it is quiet, but I loved, um, really loved Expectation by Anna Hope, which things happened, but it felt as though much more of it was about kind of inaction and reflection and a desire for sort of for time to stop. Oh, that sounds lovely. I was just thinking about um, a book with with lots of sisters in it. What you were talking about having five sisters, and uh, the most fun we ever had. Oh, I love that book. Claire Lombardo, the most fun we ever had. Yeah, and it's got these four sisters and their relationship over sort of decades, and we we watch it all kind of playing out, um, all their sort of petty rivalries and uh, resentments and secrets and you know, all, all under the sort of loving gaze of their parents. It's, it's really wonderful. And just, it's, it's so good. It's such an unusual debut because it's just so confident in its subject. And it just says, you know, is, is family life interesting enough to sustain a, a long novel? Yes, it is. You know, and it does it so brilliantly. It felt, even though it's just about that one family, there's so much detail in it that sweeping isn't quite the word, but it's that feeling of sort of enormity that she captures. And I loved the way that she writes the very intense, very loving, romantic relationship between the parents and how that romance does sort of keep on going, sometimes at the expense of, of their children. And then some of the don't want to do any spoilers but the um complicity between the sisters at the end I thought it had a really lovely wicked touch of the Maria Semples who I adore yeah I, I don't know Maria Semple but I yes I agree that those those moments where the, where the sisters having had these sort of secrets and and lies and deceptions and conflict managed to manage to come together and and sort of there's a sort of reconciliation and it's it's really it's so so wonderfully well done and and the fact that the parents are such model parents and yet even even with that they have haven't managed to keep all their daughters on on the straight and narrow and that, that they've all managed to find new and ingenious ways to screw up i just read for the first time this summer we have always lived in the castle I really love a good house or a good building in a book, but that was, you know, the best and worst. I think it was yes, so yes. brilliantly oppressive. It was, it was it was such an odd book and there's really nothing like it, is there? You can't sort of say, oh, well, if you like this, you'll like that because because it's an absolute one-off and um, it's, so, it's so gothic and so creepy. But, and you, you feel such sympathy for the characters, even though they're all as mad as hatters. It's wonderful. And, and Shirley Jackson's own um, memoir, Life Among the Savages, bringing, of bringing up four children in sort of rural Vermont, is equally hilarious and, and quirky and mad. And you just think, goodness, what, what an incredible woman. What a, what a family. There's this, there's this great story about her, her son going off to um, sort of nursery school. Maybe it's, maybe it's first grade of, of junior school. And coming back every day with stories about this this kid, I can't remember his name, but I'll call him Kevin for the sake of it, um, and, and coming out with all these things that Kevin does, which is sometimes quite naughty, and he's always getting into trouble with the teacher. And, and this goes on for quite some time, um, and, and Shirley Jackson and her husband start sort of quiz him about what, what's Kevin done next. And he's, he, you know, he's sworn at the teacher, and he's been sent out, and he's nicked things, and you know, he's obviously quite a character. So when... Shirley Jackson finally gets to go into to parents' evening and, and meet the teachers and they have a little chat about her son. She just can't resist saying, you know, God, that Kevin sounds a bit of a handful. And the teacher says, well, we haven't got a Kevin. And the, and the kid has just made up the entire, the entire child and just furnished him <laughs> with this incredible backstory and, and practically what amounts to a biography and come home and just, just fed bits of it to his parents night after night for a whole term. And it's just such a wonderful payoff in that, that little story. Uh, and this memoir is full of gems like that. It's terrific. Oh, that sounds fabulous. Storytellers beget storytellers, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. You, you think she of all people should have seen that coming. She should have, she should have seen that coming. It's exactly the sort of trick she would play. 
um, and indeed is playing on the reader, but she hasn't seen it coming in her own kid. I was reading the Cazalet Chronicles the very first time at the start of lockdown, and one of the things I loved the most is the way that Elizabeth Jane Howard writes children and she makes them so clear and real and they are never ever babyish in any way. They're sort of entirely their own people. Oh, yeah, she does that brilliantly and they're not patronised either. Um, you know, she, she sort of asks, expects a great deal of them in terms of their intelligence and, and things as characters. Um, that Actually mentioning that, that's another book that I listened to unabridged as an audiobook and you know all all five volumes unabridged I mean it took about sort of I don't know six years playing time but you know the best six years I've ever spent is it was so wonderful oh I bet that's heaven to listen to and another fabulous house I sort of imagine you know the castle compact I don't think I even really do it justice in my imagination but there's sort of this fortress that they all live in there's you know space for various no, you know, yes, refugees. and those legendary holidays that they have in in the summer, when you know all the, all the family and all the, all the cousins descend and have these wonderful picnics in the woods, and you know it, all the all the nannies come along to look after them. And, you know, there's this sort of ranks of servants to look after everybody and make the picnics and stuff. Yeah, it's just it's a completely a, another world, and it, it's it's so immersive. I, I listened to the audiobook, I think it was read by Jill Balkan, and she's got such a wonderfully plummy voice. It just does it. She does all the voices absolutely brilliantly. And it, it really is just like just stepping back in time and letting letting the past wash over you. It's so good. I haven't really found anything contemporary that, that really, you know, hits that exact same spot. I do think immersive is the perfect word. And it's a book that if you could, you know, go on holiday... If my fortnight in September could be with the Cazalets and not in Bognor Regis, I would take that. <laughs> Where would you go if you don't have to live in the book, um, but you know if you're paying it a visit? <laughs> There's a book I read when I was a child called Summer at Forty Five Acres, which was my sort of introduction to loving books, and it was it was um, set in Canada and on a homestead, and these this family of five moved from the city to this homestead and. You know, this was about as far from my suburban South London childhood as could possibly be imagined. And so that, that, that was sort of somewhere that I imagined as being the ideal place to get lost in this enormous, you know, 60-acre homestead in Canada with sort of logging and wolves and probably bears and everything. So I, I suppose that'd be, that would be the, that's the sort of lost domain that I'm always trying to return to. Oh, because I was imagining, you know, the milking of cows, I suppose, and stuff that's quite prosaic, but it sounds like there's peril in that universe. Bears. Yeah, yeah there was there was definitely a, a scene involving wolves and uh, getting caught, getting um, trapped in the snow one one year in, um, and having to go out and uh, keep the wolves at bay. That was good. But it was all very, it felt very sort of safe and, and contained in that world of fiction. Were there any books that you remember reading as a, a younger person person where you sort of you kept them a bit hidden or you thought you know I I hope no one finds out I'm reading this well yeah if it, I mean anything literary would have been fair game so I certainly wouldn't have had to hide D.H. Lawrence under the covers because my dad was a big fan of D.H. Lawrence and he would have been thrilled to think of me reading D.H. Lawrence so it, it, there wasn't anything like that but I think I, I always felt a bit a bit worried that my mum might pick up my early Jilly Coopers and not approve of those so they always felt like a bit of a guilty pleasure because I suppose I read them when I was about 13 and probably got most of my kind of sex education from them. Um, and I'm pretty sure if my mum had travelled to read them, she wouldn't have approved of me reading them. <laughs> but that, I think that probably added to the pleasure, really. I am still a huge Diddy Cooper fan and I loved her as a teenager and I love her now. Did any of those early ones which have were any particularly resonant or did any kind of stay in your because I guess I know you know the sort of the the rupture ones and the the bonk busters are quite you know there's rival hang on it's riders is the bum isn't it and um riders no I got them the wrong way around right, riders yeah. is the bum is TV one. I didn't I haven't read any of the big fat bonk buster ones because they I, I was already quite you know quite old when they came out and uh, I've sort of gone on to 
you know, <laughs> Thomas Hardy and Gloom by then. But when I was when I was thirteen, I was reading all her her romances like they're called, you know, Imogen and Harriet and Prudence and things like that. And they they all just told a sort of you know Cinderella type story of of um, the heroine you know finding true love. And they were they were very witty and they just had this really lovely witty style and. Full of, full of, you know, Jimmy Cooperish puns. Uh, absolutely, what's not to like, you know, when you're 13? Uh, they're fabulous. Well, I think Imogen is my favourite of the romances, and I know it quite well. So I mean, she's a librarian, and she falls for handsome, rugged, sort of charismatic and strangely appealing Matt. And I think I reread it recently and discovered that Matt, the older man, is about 24. <laughs> Oh yes, he seemed absolutely ancient when I read mm. it. Yes, and they all go down to the south of France with this with this flashy tennis player and his entourage. Is that right? And they have yes. a holiday in France. And there's yes. the the glamorous, very bitchy model and the awful couple, and she's a model, yes. and he's quite yes. sort of, yes, you know, most co- like the a... conservative candidate for cop Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I remember it in, in great detail. It was, it was terrific. But I think Matt, the old, old man, is a journalist and he breaks us because there's a, there's a sort of a local gangster and Imogen yes, is brave, yes. not to do any spoilers, but he like a typewriter must be found for Matt. And I think that maybe he has to like phone in his copy yes, yes, from the hotel. This fantastic scoop and it, it's, you know, it makes the holiday and Imogen's the, the heroine of the hour because she manages to get him a story, an interview with this grizzled old gangster. So this is, I suppose, a world away from um, local news and vests. Yes. <laughs> it's yes. still maybe, great fun. Maybe it sort of percolated into my mind and made me think that journalism was the, the ideal job for anyone in fiction. I guess it's a way of moving, isn't it? And I often think that women um, in books, and I think this sort of happens to... Imogen as well. Those sort of lots of I think mid to late twentieth century things. Women get to move. It's sex and writing that allow a woman a little bit of sort of transportation outside the life that she's born into. Yes, I mean it's you know the the, the woman the female character as writer is just a, a trope that's that's so in our DNA, isn't it? From Joe and Little Women, and mm. I suppose it's because everyone who's who's writing a the book is themselves a writer and so they imagine that being a writer is the finest thing that can happen to a woman maybe maybe equal with with falling in love with the ideal person but maybe maybe not maybe the writing just edges it oh god i hope so (laughs) claire i could talk to you all afternoon about books um but i'm sure you've got things to do are there any books that we haven't talked about there's someone I'd like to recommend called Kathleen Shine, who's an American writer. She sort of writes in the same vein as um, Catherine Heine of Standard Deviation fame, but I think she's probably a generation older. And um, she's, I think she's, she's probably very successful in the States, but I don't think she's well known here. Um, and I came across her years ago. She wrote a lovely romantic novel called The Love Letter, which I, I don't know if it's even still in print. Um, but she has she has published things more recently, um, and there was one called "They Do Not Mean to, But They Do" about uh, our favourite theme of dodgy parenting, and she she's got the same very witty um, kind of Jewish American light touch, you know, a bit like kind of Nora Ephron, but not exactly. And she writes very well about family life and uh, relationships and domestic, you know, dramas. Um, but for some reason, she's just not that well known over here, which I think is a shame. She wrote a book that I really loved about sisters called The Grammarians. Yes, correct. Starring an old, old dictionary, which sounds implausible, but um, it's wonderful. And I'm so glad because I love that book. And I obviously I thought she's wonderful and I must read more of her. And then the pile got overwhelming and I didn't. So I'm going to track her down. But I... Just spookily, the other week mentioned um, the grammarians to my friend Joe, who, in that, again, as you say, that sort of, I think you like it, and I hope you'll like it, but, and I didn't sort of, you know, force a copy into her hands or anything, but there's always that slight nervousness, but, um, but she adored it, and then I saw her talking to someone about it, and them going off to read it, so I think it, it's Kathleen Shine time. <laughs> 
but it really was a pleasure um and thank thank you for your brilliant beautiful book i've really really enjoyed speaking to you about books it's been really lovely to have you on the podcast well thank you very much it's been really nice talking to you and thank you for all those recommendations Huge thanks to Claire. Small Pleasures is published by WNN and out now. Your book is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. We hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did. You can follow us at YBooked on social media. Look out for book recommendations, words of wisdom from old guests and some occasional shelfies. We really love it when you share the podcast with your friends. Huge thanks to everyone who has left us a five-star review. It's the best way to help other people discover us and discover their new favourite book. You can find a list of all the books mentioned by Claire at acast.com slash booked and check out her selection in our bookshop on bookshop.org. For now, I leave you with this from Erasmus. When I have a little money, I buy books and if I have any left, I buy food and clothes. See you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.